upper room stuff series. I just, I really wanted to put the word stuff in a sermon series title. And so I did, the upper room stuff. Um, I was sitting in Starbucks, which is where I work (laughs) sometimes. And uh, actually, I'm a regular there now because I walked in and I made my order. And then I went to sit down because it takes a a few minutes. And she said, it's already ready. And I said, how's that possible? And she said, as soon as I saw you, I made it. And then everyone who heard it said, oh, you're here too much. (laughs) So that's possible. And I was sitting in Starbucks, and I was looking at all these people, you know, the baristas, whom I know now, and I, you know, all these CrossFit people come in at a certain time, and they're all making their order, and I had been talking with one of the dads from a kid at school that I know, and he had been sitting there next to me, and so we were chatting for a while, and then he left, and I was thinking about all these people, and one of the questions as I was preparing stirred me as I was looking at these people and thinking about this question, and the question was, what do I think and what do we think is the highest ver- of the virtues? Which virtue do we aspire to? We say, this virtue is, is it's the one we would, you know, most people would agree, that's the, that's the highest of the virtues. And as I looked around the coffee shop and I thought about, what would these people say? What would I say? And I thought about what C.S. Lewis said when he wrote a statement many, many, many years ago about his time, and he said, if you ask 20 good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. Do you see what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive, and this is more than a philological of importance. The negative ideal of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion, not of securing good things for others, but of abstinence for ourselves, And not their happiness is the most important point. And as I sat in Starbucks and I thought about, well, when C.S. Lewis wrote that, he was thinking unselfishness. What What would people say today? And I thought, you know, maybe probably people would say tolerance. Tolerance is the virtue we, all, we are aspiring to as a culture. We're saying we just want to be tolerant. You need to be more tolerant. We need to be more tolerant. Tolerance is the, the thing we keep putting up there. And tolerance is also a, a thing of abstinence. We say, okay, we'll just let people do something. We just, we won't, well, I'm not going to judge. So I'm not judging. I'm going to be tolerant. And again, it's the same kind of principle as unselfishness. It's another virtue of inactivity. But what is the highest virtue? We're in the upper room and we've been there for a few weeks and we're looking at the stuff Jesus is saying. Now Jesus, is he's been in his ministry for three years. He's been teaching and he's been doing parables and provoking people. And now it's the night before he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be beaten and he's going to be crucified. And he's waiting for his death that's coming and the resurrection that he knows is after that. And he takes the basin, remember, and he washes the disciples' feet and he, they resist him. They say, no, 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 don't do that. That's a, that's a low job. And Jesus says, if I'm doing this for you, you need to serve each other in this way. And then Jesus takes bread and he breaks it. And he says, remember, my body broken for you. And then he takes the cup and he drinks it and he says, Do this in remembrance of me, the, the 
my blood shed for a new covenant, for the forgiveness of your sins. But then what do they talk about? They're in that room for hours. What do they talk about when they're around the table and they're chatting and they're eating and they're laughing? What are the things Jesus tells them right before he's about to go? When he's thinking about his departure and later the coming of the Spirit. This is John chapter 13 to John chapter 17. And remember, we picked John chapter 15 that we were going to talk about. So here we are. We're in John chapter 15. We're at verse 12 to 17. And this is what Jesus says to his disciples and to us. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And as we're talking about what does it mean to be a Christian, my big idea this morning is being a Christian means learning to love others. It's profound. You might want to write it down. It'll be hard to remember. Go ahead, write it down. Being a Christian means learning to love others. Jesus says, love as I have loved you. You know, having kids means that I have these mini I have five kids. And so there's five little reflections of parts of me in them. And some of those things are good things. And some of those things are good things. <laughs> it's all good. However, I can see lots of Lauren's bad things reflected in the kids. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It's actually way easier for me to say, oh, that's, hey, that's you getting stressed out right there. Oh, yeah, that's that. And, you know, like, it's easy. and then when I see good things, I'm like, oh, that's totally me. You know, oh, that's awesome. It's easy to do that, right? And, and you know what? We celebrate those great reflections, right? Those little things. And when the boys come up to Lauren and they say, oh, you look beautiful today, mom. I say, oh, that's a beautiful re- reflection because that's what I do in front of them all the time. I'm saying that. And here they are saying it to her, too. When they get excited over one another's special project someone brings home and they all come over and say, oh, wow, that looks so awesome. Great job. I get excited because I say, oh, that's how we respond to their stuff. And we see these little things where they do what they've seen. Unfortunately, they also do the other stuff they've seen too. (laughs) But we'll talk about the good stuff. The point is that Jesus tells us to imitate him. He says, record, observe, learn. Look at what I've done and learn from it and then do what I do. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. As I have loved you. Now, the problem is that we come from a family of origin. You you realize this if you've gotten married, that you come from a family of origin where you thought all those things were normal the way your family did it. You say, oh, this is how we do everything. And this is how we do finances. This is how we do conflict. This is how we do this. This is how we do that. This is how we do family trips. Yes, okay. And then suddenly you get married maybe and you encounter a different set of perspectives 
on how we do things. And you realize this wasn't, no, this is just my family. Like my family's weird, maybe. <laughs> your family, maybe they're weird. And you bring these two families together and you realize all oh, there's, it's just your family of origin. And then you're making this new thing that you have to figure out together. The same thing is true when we come into God's family. We come out of the world. We come out of our own family, our own experience. And we come into God's family and and sometimes it's a surprise to say, oh, this is different. How we do finances, how we do conflict, how we do relationships, how we do things is different in God's family. And he says, here, I've set it out for you. This is how we're doing it. It's different. And so as we approach love, as we talk about love, it's important, I think, to say a few things that love is not. Because maybe we've had some experiences that are inaccurate, they're, they're inaccurate views of love. And the first one is that love is not niceness. I think lots of people think of love as niceness. And the church has done a horrible job with this. We made love into this religious thing that looks like niceness. We're just going to be nice. And niceness is what we're after. And it's like a shiny veneer. And it's very shallow, actually, this niceness. Because the truth is, I can be nice to you and not really love you. I'm just being nice. Oh, yeah. Why did you say that? Well, I was just being nice. I'm just being nice. I'm trying to be nice. I'm after niceness. Love is not niceness. That's not what, how we define it. Love is deeper and it's more real. And sometimes, actually, love doesn't feel nice at all. <laughs> it can be hard or painful. Secondly, love is not attraction. This is a, a high school idea of love. That love is this feeling I have. It's butterflies in my stomach. Oh, I'm in love. Oh, I'm so excited. Oh, I really love this girl. It's so exciting. I have this feeling inside. It makes me feel, you know, it's this wonderful feeling. I can't even describe it. That's why we can see marriages come apart. And we think, oh, well, I'm not attracted. I don't love them anymore. I'm not attracted to them. Attraction isn't love. Love is more rooted and strong. Do you think Mother Teresa is attracted, was attracted to the lepers and the outcasts she took care of? I love them. Yeah, I'm very attracted to helping them in these horrible conditions. No. Love is a choice. It's not a feeling at all in these situations. Thirdly, love is not happy feelings. We have this idea that, I think it's a cultural idea, that love is a happy feeling. I love coffee. I love good wine. I love, I love, I love these things because they make me feel happy. And I think that's what love is. It's supposed to make me feel happy all the time. That love is just our happy moments. Love is not happiness. C.S. Lewis again says this, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If we want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all the entanglements. And then in that place, locked up, safe and dark and motionless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Jesus says, love as I loved you. He says, this is my commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 
Jesus demonstrates love the way we are meant to love. Firstly, Jesus' love is sacrificial. It's sacrificial. There's the, the, it's like a chicken soup for the soul story about the little boy and the, his sister, and she's got leukemia or something. She needs a blood transfusion. You probably read it on the internet. It was forwarded to you. And she's sick, and so she needs this blood transfusion. And so they go to the boy, and he's able to give blood that will help her. And so they say, would you be willing to give blood for your sister? And he says, okay. And so they bring him into the room, and they sit him down, and they— you know, put the needle in everything. They're taking the blood. It starts to come. And then he says, how, how long before I die? Right? And that's the picture is like, he thinks he's giving all his blood when, you know, he's loving his sister. He's willing to die for her. Now, Jesus willingly gave the ultimate sacrifice for us, and he knew it would cost him his life. He didn't go into it thinking, oh, maybe this will, oh, no, oh, this didn't turn out quite how I thought. It turned out exactly as he thought. That's why it was so hard for him to do it. Jesus went to a suffering and to a gruesome death for us. And the Bible says Jesus died for us, not while we were his friends, but while we were his enemies. So he says, you know, greater love has no one than they lay down their life for their friends. I think, yes, I lay down my life for my friends. Sometimes people lay down their lives for even people they don't know very well, but usually you don't lay down your life for your enemies. Jesus did for the whole world. And our love is also meant to be sacrificial and costly. Secondly, Jesus' love is generous. C.S. Lewis says, The Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. This is the picture of the love of Jesus. He's loving all these people. It almost seems indiscriminate. He, he doesn't love based on good behavior. Oh, now I'll give you a little bit of love. That was good, good. Okay, now I'm waiting. Oh, there's some good behavior. I'll give you a little more love. Okay, I'm waiting. Oh, there's some more good behavior. I'll love you now. Jesus loves, it's, it just goes out. He loves Zacchaeus and Nicodemus. He loves, or he heals lepers and the synagogue leader's daughter. He welcomes children and prostitutes and Pharisees. I don't know how all that works, but he does. And our love is meant to be as grace-filled and transformative as the love of Jesus, because we love with his love. But when Jesus loves people, they are transformed. They change. Things happen. Thirdly, Jesus' love is faithful. Mother Teresa says, do not think that love in order to be genuine has to be extraordinary. What we need is to love without getting tired. Be faithful in small things because it is in them that your strength lies. And when you look at the life of Jesus and up, he's up in this room talking to them. And if they think about his life to this moment, so he's about to give his life. But up to this moment, he's given his moments to them. He's called them to follow him and day in and day out, Barring a few times where he pulls away and he's alone, he's with these guys and, and women and a whole crowd of people who follow him. And they're his disciples and they're learning from him and growing with him. And he's challenging them and he's, he's loving them in the little moments every day, day in and day out. And our love is meant to be constant and faithful. It doesn't need to be extravagant for it to be love. It can be little, little moments, little things. Often we think, we trick ourselves into thinking love is this big thing, and then we, we let the little things go. 
Oh, yeah, that was just a sharp comment I made to that person. Or, oh, yeah, that was just how I treated that person. Or that was just that thing. But, you know, I'm doing this big, big, big love project. I'm going to love everyone. Everyone's going to see this big love thing. In the end, all those little things are love too, and they matter. They add up to something. We see these qualities in the early church when they so were filled with the Spirit, and they stepped out and they said, how are we going to love like Jesus? How are we going to be like Jesus? And then they did things like they gathered regularly and then they shared what they had and they met needs. You have a need. Okay, let's help. You guys have something. Okay, you can help them and you can help them. Okay, great. And we're meeting needs. And they were exhorting and teaching and challenging each other and encouraging each other on a journey, on a road together. That's how they expressed the love of Jesus. Secondly, Jesus says, I call you friends. I call you friends. There's a, a Western. I like Westerns. And there's a Western with Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday. And they're friends. And Doc Holliday gets really sick. And they're, they're going after all these gangs. And Wyatt Earp's trying to take them down. And Doc Holliday's going with him. But he's sick. And he gets sicker and sicker. And um, one of the couple of the other guys with him are like, Doc, why are you doing this? You should be in bed. Like, you're so sick. And Doc answers, you know, they say, why are you doing this? And he says, Wyatt Earp's my friend. And then the, the other guy, and I quote, says, hell, I got a lot of friends. And then Doc Holliday says, well, I don't. And then a little bit later, Wyatt Earp's going to the gunfight where he's meeting a fast draw and he knows he's going to die. He knows he can't, he's not as fast. And Doc Holliday sneaks out the window ahead of him and goes to the fight in his place and takes the draw. Dun, dun, no. <laughs> I don't know about you. Do you have lots of friends? Maybe you have a lot of friends. Maybe you don't have any friends. The point is you have never had a friend like this before. You have never had a friend like God. And the Bible talks about friendship with God. In the Old Testament, we see these certain people and they seem to have these special relationships with God. And you think, oh, I read those stories. I'm like, oh, I, I wish that could be me. Oh, Abraham. In James, it says this, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Like, how'd you like that to be in your, you know, your thing at the end of your life? Yeah, they was, he was a friend of God. Be like, oh, Abraham, but that's Abraham, right? Abraham. And then there's Moses, Exodus 33. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Oh, I wish that could happen to me. But that's Abraham and Moses, right? Like, we're not Abraham and Moses. And then I read in Psalm 25, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. Speaks of someone coming before the Lord with a heart after friendship with God. A heart that reveres him, that worships him and honors him. And God shares something back with them. I think that sounds special. Is that available for us, for people? And then I look at what Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us. And he says this, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus tells his disciples, there's a shift happening. No longer means something's changed. 
You had this before, but no longer. Now it's like this. You had this, you know, experience or relationship. Now it's changing. It's like this. I had that when I went to university. I grew up in my, my family. My mom and my dad, they like gave me boundaries. I had a curfew. I had a relationship with them that was parent-child relationship. They watched out for me. They took care of me. I was accountable to them. I went away to university. Oh, man. Do you know the things I learned at university? You can order pizza at 3 in the morning and eat it. Okay, it was pretty docile, actually, what I learned. I also learned you can dye your hair green with Kool-Aid, which was what I looked like when I came home at Christmas. Our dorm dyed our hair red and green for Christmas. I also found out you can pierce your own nipple, one of the guys in my dorm mate. Don't ever do that. That was horrible. I learned that by watching someone else do it. Horrible thing. I also went swimming in the pool in the university pond at midnight. We all snuck out and avoided security and went swimming in the pond. And I did things that were like, my parents would freak out. I'm not allowed to do this at home. And I came home and things were different. Our relationship was different. I was calling the pizza place at three in the morning at my house. No, I didn't do that. But things had changed. Our relationship had shifted. And now there was a different relationship. Jesus says servants and friends have different relationships. There's different qualities those relationships exhibit. And Jesus says we're moving to a different relationship. So a couple of things that I think are important as we talk about what's the difference between those relationships. Servants are task-driven and friends are relationship-driven. Servants are task-driven and friends are relationship-driven. Just picture You are asking a servant to do something or you're asking a friend to do something. So a good example would be like you're moving your house. And so you get, you hire someone. They are not your servant, but movers would not like me saying that. But they're like, you're hiring them for a job. So they're going to do this task for you. Think about what that looks like. And then what it looks like when you call up your friend and you're like, hey, can you help me move? Your friend's like, what? I don't know. I don't know if I want to help you move. I'm, I don't know. This is going to be a big job. You're like, come on. You're, we're friends. And they're like, okay, okay, I'll come help you. When you go help someone move, it's not because you necessarily want to move things. You do it because of relationship. The servant is doing it for money or for the task they're hired to do. It's different. The thing is the same, maybe. But the reason behind it is different. They're working for a different reason. So as we look at what we're doing in our, in, in our church, in our gatherings, in our small groups, in our, the, the things we're active in, the question is, why are we doing these things? Are they task-driven? Well, we should do that because we are supposed to do that. Are you on a change service team? You need to do that. Or are we doing it because we're relationship-driven? We want relationship. Why are we doing small groups? Why are we launching small groups? I'm aware that people have bad experiences with small groups. You say, I tried small groups. They were horrible. The other one I went to, I went to it for seven years. It was horrible. It's like hell on earth every week, you know. (laughs) And they go through this experience. I understand that's some people's experience. The reality is we want to do groups for relationship. We can't. We can't do the same thing on Sunday morning. We need to get in a smaller group and build relationship. And I'm hoping and believing it's possible that we can do it as friends, not as servants. 
Servants also, secondly, servants just do things because you tell them to. Friends ask why. This wasn't in a commentary, by the way. Servants just do things and friends ask why. This is when I'm picturing, I'm asking a servant to do something or I'm asking my friends to do something. My friends would be like, why? I'd be like, hey, can you clean the floor? Okay. Hey, can you clean the floor? Why? Because I need someone to clean the floor. Well, why? Because I want you to. Like, okay, well, or why aren't you doing it? Well, because I'm not. I need your help because I'm doing this other thing. A friend's engaged or talking to you. Now that almost sounds horrible, but the point is that Friends need buy-in. But when they have it, it's way better. Would you rather do something with a servant or with a friend? With a friend. Because once they're bought in, it's fun. You're doing something together. You're engaged on a mission together. The servant doesn't need to know why. They just said, just tell me the task and I'll do it. The friend says, well, why? I want to know where we're going. I want to buy in and do it with you. I have this realization with my kids because I want my kids to be compliant. I want them to obey me the first time I ask, every time. Is that too much to ask? I don't know. This is what I want. I'm still working on it. That's what I want. I want when I say, hey, do that. My kid says, okay, and they do it. But I realized something somewhere along the way when this became impossible, that as I was fighting for compliance, I was actually fighting for something I didn't really want in them. Because I don't just want my kids to be compliant, like, oh, okay, dad. Oh, okay, dad. Oh, okay, dad. And then the world asks them to do something. And they say, oh, okay, world. Oh, okay. We just do whatever people tell us because we're compliant. I don't want compliant kids. I want kids who are bought into the mission, who understand what we're doing and understand where we're going. And they, want to, they need to talk it out, but we talk it out and then we work it through and we won't move forward together. They're bought in so that when they get in a different situation, they're bought in. They're not compliant. They're powerful partners in the mission and the ministry. And that's what God wants from us. He doesn't just want compliant robots. He says, I called you friends because I want you to come and buy in. And do this with me. What is Jesus doing that he wants us to do with him? Loving. Loving. He is loving. John 4, John, 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says this. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Or 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. If we're the friends of God, we're going to buy into this life mission that we're meant to love others. If we love what he loves and we hate what he hates, we will love others. He loves. He's reconciled the world and he calls us his ambassadors to proclaim this message to a lost world of love, a message of love. Everything summed up and hanging on those commands to love God and love others. And lastly, Jesus tells us to bear abiding fruit. 
There's some things that last in the world. I don't know what they are. Because they don't belong in my house, these things that last. I realized this this week when my dishwasher broke. After Mickey mousing it for a few years, the top rack always was like, okay, two things on it at a time. It's balanced on two wheels, not four. Whoa. That was our dishwasher. And then this week, the motor started smelling of burnt plastic and all that. Fried, gave up the ghost, whatever expression you want to put on it. It's no big deal in our family because we only have seven people. And we don't make a mountain of dishes. Oh, yes, we do. Just found out just how many dishes we make when they're all piled on the counter. Or my bath faucet is not one of those things that lasts forever. The little handle, the screw, there's a screw in there that got stripped somehow. Who's doing this? Children? I don't know. And the handle broke off, won't go back on. Now I'm turning on and off the faucet with my, my pliers, you know? It's like really awesome. Anytime someone takes a bath, they're like, Dad, Dad, we need you. I got the pliers. It's a safety thing, kids. So you can't use the hot water without me. It's awful. I put in that faucet myself. I'm like, this isn't even that old. It's like, like 11 years old. Okay. It's getting old. Now we're waiting for the part to come. But I realize this things don't last. They they don't last. <laughs> they're, they're always wearing out. Everything feels like it's wearing out. You put in something new, and it's like that for that moment, and then it's wearing out. <laughs> Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. It should remain. Your fruit should last. I think, I have a fruit tree. All the fruit just fell off, and it's all like, Moldy on the ground right now. I didn't even get to picking it. It doesn't last. Fruit doesn't last. How is that even going to work? The idea that I'm going to be able to bear fruit that lasts seems ridiculous to me. I think I can't do that. Nothing lasts. Nothing temporal lasts. Eternal things last. Eternal things last. I was talking to someone this week, and the story of Henry Nouwen came up in my conversation. Henry Nouwen was a guy who, he was a professor at Harvard. He had all these books he'd written. He was, you know, everyone wanted to be in his class. He was a sought-out speaker, and people revered him. They were, oh, yeah, he's such an amazing person, and he got all this great stuff he's done. And then Henry Nouwen went to Larsh, or Lausch. And it's a home for the disabled, mentally and physically disabled. The residents there, the purpose of that home is to care for people with respect and kindness. And he went and moved in there. And he experienced something that is a kingdom principle. And this is what it is. And he found it with the disabled who have this corner on the kingdom that we miss all the time. And it's this, that as he stood before those residents... He realized something, and what he realized was nothing he had done mattered. None of the books he'd written mattered. None of the recommendations from famous people mattered. None of the classes he taught, Harvard, all these names didn't matter. The only thing that mattered when he was standing in front of them was this one question. Will you love me right now? Will you love me? 
And his life was transformed by that experience, realizing there's things that last and things that don't. And love is one of those things that lasts. It is abiding fruit. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 and 8 says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Or in verse 13, it says, So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is what lasts. Love goes on. Your relationships matter. We invest so much in our career, in this, in that, in these achievements, in getting these things. And in the end, love is what matters. Love is what endures. 1 John 4, 16 says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. Jesus says in our passage, these things I command you so that you will love one another. You guys, I can't love without help. I think about it, I look at my life, I think, I'm too introverted. I need my space. I need my space. I'm too shy. I have a hard time talking with people. Like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to love the way I'm supposed to love? I'm too proud and selfish and fearful to do it. I'm too stubborn. I need to be transformed by the power of his spirit. Again, with C.S. Lewis today, he's the star of the show. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. You're the house. And God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps you understand what he's doing. You say, oh, oh, yes, of course. Uh, there's those drains that need uh, taking care of. And there's the stopping the leaks in the roof. And you knew those jobs needed doing. And so you're not surprised. But then, presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts or abominably or does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he doing? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage? But he's building a palace. One in which he's going to come and live himself. This is the picture and the promise. John, 1 John 4.13 says, By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he's given us of his spirit. That's how I know I'm abiding. His spirit is in me. That's my hope. I don't trust myself to learn how to love. I don't think I'm going to be able to do it myself. I'm trusting his spirit to do the work of renovation in my life, to transform me into a palace beyond my imagination. That's the promise in the picture. So what are we doing as a church? How do we walk in relationship? How do we love one another? How do we do that as a community? So a few things. When we started this church, when we launched, we said, wow, there's so many things we could be doing. Oh, we could do that. We could do this. We could do Oh my goodness. How are we going to decide? And I read a 
it was, I, like an article about, it's called Simple Church. And it sounded good to me. They said, Simple Church is about three S's. You just start focusing on these three things. And so that's what we started with. And they are Sundays. We said, we're going to have a Sunday morning gathering. We're going to worship together. We're going to gather together. We're going to pray together and encourage and exhort each other. We're going to share in communion. We're going to eat snacks at the end and have coffee. And today we're going to have lunch together. Sundays, but Sunday won't be enough to build the kind of relationship we want. There's other things that we do. Service is another one. We said, okay, Sunday service. We need to be giving out, serving, finding where we fit, where we were made to do. So some of that is in the context of the church. Where are you made to serve? How do your gifts bless and encourage people in the church? We've got lots of teams for Sunday morning. We've got other things we're doing as a church that you are places where you can serve. But we also serve in the community. We bless the community and we make an impact. I'm coaching soccer. So it doesn't look good in my schedule. But man, it's sure life-giving to go out there and love a bunch of kids and encourage them and teach them. And thirdly, we said we're going to do small groups. And uh, we'd encourage you to do that. We're about to launch some small groups. And I'd encourage you, if you're not part of a small group, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a community group. So for us, this fall, we realized we're in the play practice on Tuesday nights, and we have all these different things going on. So we said, okay, don't don't fill your schedule with church stuff. I would church things every night. I can't hang out with my neighbors. Can't invite anyone over because I'm doing church stuff. Don't do that. But as much as we have a big group gathering, you need to be gathering in small groups somehow, somewhere, and meeting together. So we have community groups. We have journey groups. We have different things happening that are places where you can join and connect with people. I encourage you to find a group and connect. How will you love one another? How are we going to do that together and walk it out? So now you have the answer to what is the greatest virtue if someone ever asked you in a survey, C.S. Lewis ever came to you and asked you, don't say unselfishness, don't say tolerance, say love. The greatest virtue. Being a Christian means learning to love others. We love, Je- we love as Jesus has loved us. He set the example for us, and we're meant to walk in it. Love that's sacrificial and generous and faithful, walking with one another through the ups and downs. Secondly, we love as friends of God. We have been called friends of God, partners in the ministry and mission that God has on earth, and we're in it with him. And the ministry, the mission is to proclaim and demonstrate God's love to the world. Thirdly, we love as eternal produce. Love lasts. We can't self-produce it. We don't make this kind of fruit ourselves. We need his spirit to fill us and grow this fruit in us. That's the hope. That's the trust, is that his spirit is doing that work in us as we surrender to him daily. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that that as you were leaving the earth physically, as you were thinking about what you were going to say, that these are things you wanted to impart to your disciples and to us as your disciples to come. 
that you would call us to abide. You'd call us to grow, to be fruit bearers. And in explanation, you talked about love, that this would be the mark of your church. This would be a witness to the world. This would be what we were known for, that we would love one another. And Jesus, we confess that uh, we haven't done this well necessarily as a church worldwide or even as churches individually or as people. And we, we ask you today, if you would come and fill our hearts with your spirit, that you would enable us to love the way you love. You would show us how and when and where to be sacrificial how and when and where that our generous love would pour out to the world around us. How and when and where we were meant to love the way you do. Thank you that this is what you call us to. And you enable us to do it by your spirit. We love you, God.